I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. So welcome to this week's episode of Talking With Cancer. As ever, it's lovely to have you. And thanks for coming back. Week two on my own without Claire. I don't know how long I'm going to keep saying that Claire's not here for. This week, I chatted to an amazing friend. You've heard me describe her as my friend, the guru. And I think the reason I do that is because she's someone who is very wise and brilliant at kind of reflecting back thoughts and what I say, where I'm at in my life. She does that without judgment. She does that from a place of interest and observation and curiosity. Um, I think we share a sort of zest for life in a way and everything that that entails. Because we chatted for quite a long time, I don't really feel that there is enough time for me to kind of update you on where I am, but I will be doing that we go along weekly before each interview to give you some insight into yeah what's going on with me I guess the main thing to say is that I continue with the hopefulness of how things will play out for me and I mentioned in the wrap-up episode about seeing this woman this spiritual woman when I was away in Greece who really reminded me that despite having a cancer diagnosis with an outlook that means I won't be cured, I don't know a lot of things about how my life's going to unfold. And I think that was really the main takeaway. I don't know. So why live from a place where I do know? And it just jolted me back into feeling alive again, I suppose. And that was really powerful. And I think it's relevant with regards to this week's episode with Deborah because I think that she lives from that place and I think it's very hard to live from that place. It's kind of easier when you have a cancer diagnosis because you're always reminded every day that life is precious but also turbulent and it's kind of what you make it really. So here we are introducing my dear friend Deborah, my friend the guru. So listen, you've heard me talk quite a lot about my friend the guru, that's what she's become known, because genuinely I feel like my friend is a guru, like she's always got an amazing outlook on life, she's got an amazing practice herself, she's not perfect, let's be honest, but she provides that insight with no ego and that to me is a real guru so I'm really lucky to have this person in my life Deborah Berryman welcome to Talking With Cancer thanks for joining 
so good to be here. And as you're saying that intro, here's what comes up for me. There's a little bit of fear about the kind of label and the expectation <laughs> of what I might share today. And there's a little bit of delight <laughs> that I'm held in that regard. So that I think affirms for me that I'm definitely not a guru because I don't think the Dalai Lama worries about that kind of thing. <laughs> but I love it. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. It's such a joy to be with you this morning. Oh, do you know what, though? I do always call you my friend, the guru. So I don't, that's also an interesting one in light of your response, because maybe there's something about me also not wanting to put that pressure onto you. And also knowing that it's a two-way relationship that we have. And that's one of my issues, being very conscious in all of my relationships. Like, am I giving? Because I feel like you're giving me, am I giving you? And so you are my friend, the guru. And you're Deborah as well. You're lots of things. You're lots of things. But what's really nice on that is like, is how we met and where we met, because I feel like that's also quite relevant. So back in 2015, wasn't it? Tell the story. <laughs> 2015 on a beach in South Goa in India. I think it was Christmas and New Year, wasn't it? We were there for Christmas and New Year. I was, I teach a retreat out there every year. So I was having a little bit of a holiday before my retreat started. And there was a friend of mine that was there, a guy called Rob, who is a mutual friend. And we'd spent the last few days with Rob and all of a sudden you'd bumped into Rob on, on the beach this, at this same retreat location. And you had been lifelong friends for since childhood, which was an amazing connection. Yeah, we spent those two weeks, <laughs> such fond memories. And this is why I fell in love with you, Katie. Let me just say this, okay. that during those two weeks or so within the first few days I found a real kindred spirit I found someone who you know the obvious things about we run our own business and we love yoga but you are somebody who is able to be such good fun and go so deep within a breath there is no topic that is off the table with you and I remember we spent those couple of weeks having some very deep conversations and we broke into the five-star hotel next door to go to their new year's party and you know we went out dancing a lot we're very silly very silly and very serious and um it's really what I look for in friendship I love people that can go there and I saw that in you in bucket loads and there's also this in yoga terms we call this a tridosha somebody who's really got this lovely balance of energy where they're you know, they're ambitious, but they haven't got sharp edges or they're curious, but they're not nosy. They're playful, but not childish and, you know, successful without being arrogant and you're spiritual without being woo-woo. And all of that, I just love. And when you find somebody with those qualities and most of all with genuine care and interest in other people, which is what I found in you too, it's kind of rare. And oh. so when you find somebody like that, you really want to keep hold of them. And you, my darling, are one of those people. Oh, for sure. That's really sweet. You make me feel a bit emotional. I've had such an emotional week. I didn't think I'd have any more tears, but a few are coming up. That's really lovely. And I think what's really nice as well is like, sometimes you can have a holiday romance, can't you? And it doesn't really work back home. But we definitely kind of maintained that friendship and it, it's just been really lovely. But it's also grown in a really lovely organic you know, way. And I've definitely found particularly like since my diagnosis, it's so interesting how 
the kinds of friends that one needs around them. And that's not about, you don't know how that's going to play out. And it's also not a conscious thing. But definitely I've found with you, I think because you've just got such an amazing kind of insight, you know, we can go deep and we can talk about things like death and, you know, things like cancer. And it doesn't throw you. And I don't feel like you're going home with this huge weight and, you know, you kind of, that stuff you think about every day, isn't it? Mm, yeah. To me, it's really the only thing that's meaningful in life is let's let's talk about the real stuff. And it doesn't even have to be dark, but just the real stuff. And, you know, we don't have to stay there, but I want to know that we can go there and be there and, and sit with each other in it. You know, we, we're not there to fix it or, or change it. It is what it is. And, and I think people that can do that are really precious for me because, you know, there's this real sense that we're all doing this alone but we need each other. We really need each other. And I don't need somebody to fix things. I don't need them to change it. I don't need them to convince me to be okay with things. Mm -hmm. And you do that too. Mm. You know? Well, that's my kind of, how are you sort of, you know, just being able to ask someone that, but then, you, you know, being able to take it as well. You're very good at letting people be and letting yourself be where you are. I think that's what's really admirable. How did you kind of, come to this I would call it a spiritual practice but I don't know if you would a sort of a daily practice I feel like you've got a very committed way of living your life I suppose how did can you go back a little bit to kind of explain how you came yeah. to that oh my brain my brain is trying to figure out how far back to go <laughs> so it really I grew up in in quite a difficult situation I had two parents that were active alcoholics so there's there's a fun setting. <laughs> Two parents that were active alcoholics. My father died of a heart attack when I was four years old, actively drinking. He kind of drank himself to death in the end. And then my mum, already an alcoholic, fell into this just dark hole of desperation. And so there's three kids, me being the youngest, who are left to fend for ourselves. Growing up in that environment, there was repetitive neglect abuse violence chaos you know it was just it was a war zone in, in many ways and it's interesting because the home should be the safest place but actually I couldn't wait to get to school so I grew up in that environment and needless to say as I grew up as a young adult I sought refuge in drugs and alcohol and, and relationships and, and anything else that really took me away from all of the chaos that I felt inside and and those things were self-soothing for a short period of time but inevitably they took their own toll and and so I ended up at 26 I finally took myself into recovery and, and decided to stop it all and that's such an interesting process because when you have come from that history and have sought refuge in those resources and then you stop all of it you're then faced with the chaos that's inside still and so I was left with that I knew I had to just find a different way so as soon as I got sober and stopped using anything, the first thing I did was yoga meditation, mostly because I couldn't sit still in my body. It didn't feel like a safe place to be. It didn't feel like a peaceful place to be. And um, so I couldn't really be in my own skin. And that's, if you, if you think about that, you know, when I say that out loud, I couldn't, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. That's such a weird idea, right? And yet so many of us experience that. Mm. So that's kind of where it all started. It's this kind of, how do I learn how to be comfortable in who I am and uncover 
what that is underneath all of the conditioning and the experiences and the training that I've experienced so far in my life. How do I get underneath all of this? And, and then it started to become more curious about not just who I was, but how do other people take, why do people do the things that they do? And it wasn't so that I'm really smart and it wasn't so that I can kind of work people out. It was really, can I understand so that I can soften a little bit? so that I'm not confused and angry <laughs> and frustrated either at myself or other people. So really, I guess it's getting to the essence of the human condition so that I'm able to look around the world with softer eyes to go, okay, their behavior is quite weird. It's not something I would choose, but I understand they're scared or they're frightened or they're angry or whatever it might be. The hurt usually hurt underneath all of that. And that was really interesting, especially when COVID came about. I remember we had many conversations about some of the weird behavior we were seeing in our culture and society and, and seeing beyond the behavior. You know, this is what somebody does when they're scared. They buy toilet roll, <laughs> whatever it may be. You know, so my it started from a place of pain. It now comes from more from a place of love. It's kind of like, how can I be a more loving person in the world for myself and others? So I do, I'm pretty religious about my morning routine. I get up at 5.30 and I spend about three hours, which is such a luxury. Wonderful, wonderful. And that will include reading something that I find inspirational. You know, authors can be amazing at conveying a truth that I haven't quite got the language for. Mm, you brought Mark Nepo into my life. Yeah. You know, for example, yeah. you're a brilliant resource for writers and podcasts and brilliant people who mm. kind of then leads to another and another but you're always a good person for me to go to and say you know got anything got anything for me <laughs> for this so you'll always be in a book will you always be in a book and I'm looking for like Mark Nepo is a wonderful he's a he's a philosopher and a mystic poet and he's able to describe the undescribable which always helps me to make sense of my own experience which is quite difficult to first of all put language around for myself and then to articulate with somebody else and, but it's not until I understand the truth of who I am and what I'm experiencing can I truly connect with another human being which I know sounds a bit deep but I think what I'm looking for is real and rich connection with other people and I can't do that if I don't understand what I'm really experiencing or if I can't understand what they might be feeling you know this practice of empathy you know, when somebody says, I can imagine you get this with cancer, people have this flippant saying of, you know, I can't imagine what you're going through. And that really frustrates me because my answer to that is, well, can you try imagine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what empathy that's is. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Time and try to imagine what I'm mm. going through. And then maybe you can meet me where mm. I am. And I think that knowing yourself really well in order to connect is very valuable because then you understand why you might respond to certain things in other people. And yeah. usually it's about ourselves, isn't it? Yeah. Usually a frustration or, you know, a trigger yeah. goes yeah. back to something. But what I feel with you, now that you've talked about your childhood and your past a little bit, is that that must have been a lot to unravel. And what I'm always very impressed about is the compassion that you have for other people 
and yourself. I think you have got good compassion for yourself, actually, which a lot of people don't. And that's a real, again, a real testament to your practice. Because I feel that you are very gifted in a lot of ways, but I feel like you've really committed to bringing those parts of yourself out because I feel like you weren't nurtured in a way that delivered those gifts, for want of a better word, or assets of yourself. You had to really find them. And when you talked about going through recovery, you know, actually what you touched on is like when you put alcohol or addiction to one side, it's actually really painful what you're left with. That's what the addiction's doing. It's dampening out the pain. So that's when the work, you know, there's a whole lifetime of work. And actually you are 25 plus years sober and you commit to recovery and that side of your practice. I mean, we haven't even got past what we're at about 6am now. So sorry, carry on. But you know, there's all that side as well. So yeah. so go on. So you're in a book. It's 6am. Yeah, <laughs> How many cups of tea are you on by now? I've got a fresh pot of coffee on the go. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> I'll then meditate. And this has been, you know, so important to me since the beginning, but more so in the last 10 years or so. And actually, the importance of this grows and grows as the older I get. But this willingness to really sit with myself and listen deeply, which is what meditation is for me, because how can I possibly know the truth if I'm not listening? You know, it's a bit like if I'm sitting with a dear friend, but I'm not listening to what they're saying, how can I possibly connect with them? The practice is a combination of movement and stillness, you know, rhythm and, and silence. More and more these days, I try and carve in as much silence as I can so that I can I can listen inside because there's so much noise around. Is that when you talk about listening to yourself, it sounds like you're talking about how you can bring out elements of what you're holding inside, potentially, like physically, mm. connect that to what you're holding in your mind and and just let whatever comes up, come up. Is that right? Because it sounds very a difficult thing to do. Mm, yeah. So it's this willingness to get underneath the noise. So my mind, so if we think about the human experience, emotion is the trigger for mental patterns. So we feel something and our way of trying to cope with the feeling is to think our way out of it for the mind to start obsessing and, you know, planning and all that kind of stuff. So the mind is a little bit of a distraction. So when I come to meditation, it's giving the mind some time to quiet down so that I can drop into what I'm really feeling. And it's kind of like getting underneath the layers. So my mind might be telling me a story about how, you know, I spoke to Katie yesterday and she said this thing and I think she's being really selfish and, you know, all those kind of storylines. And once I allow that to quieten down underneath that, what is more true is that I feel hurt. And what is more true is that I'm worried that she doesn't really hold me in high regard or she doesn't value my relationship. And underneath all of that, I believe that I'm not worth friendship or love. So it's getting right to the root of something. And then once I found the root, then I can tend to that. And a bit like the way that we wish our parents had have done, you know, how do I take care of this really vulnerable part of me that still believes at some level that she's not worthy of love and respect? How do I tend to her? Because if I don't do that, I will spill it out into the world and I will make it somebody else's job 
to somehow make me feel better. So it's really about taking responsibility for that. Wow. That's amazing. Mm. That's really smart. It's like whatever that top level thought is, go again, go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. And I guess, is that the same as kind of really tuning into your gut instinct? Is that what we might call it? it yeah. In, in a different way, we might say, yeah. I think so. It's a training in getting to the truth. Mm. Right? Again yeah. and again, whether that's about my own emotional reaction or whether it's a felt sense yeah. about another person. You know, our gut sense is usually telling us the truth, but our mind can play tricks on us, especially if we really want something. So if we find something attractive, our mind can tell us all the reasons why it's a really good idea. And yet we have a gut feeling that says, mm. I don't think this is right. Yes. For you. yes, right. And so the whole practice for me is about, can I get in touch with the truth? And more and more, can I learn to trust that and live from that? It might take you oh, a, a couple touch. of mornings, a couple of mornings, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of pots of coffee. <laughs> okay, so this is a commitment. Yes. This is what I've talked about on the podcast as well with Claire, you know, practice, 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 commitment. It's not just lighting a candle and getting in a bath full of salts. It's, you know, it's everyday life. So, okay. So that's a big part of it. So you're reading something, you're meditating, you're listening on a deeper level to yourself. Mm. What do you do then? So then I do movement practice, either yoga or somatics. And then I will go into the woods, you know, where I live. I live just opposite 800 acres of woods. And I'll be in there every morning. And that as well is a practice. It's a reminder that I am part of nature and especially with the seasons it's so wonderful like I'm watching the seasons change at the moment and autumn is such a great teacher on how to let things go because when nature lets things go it becomes a little more beautiful right if you look at the leaves that are turning red and the way that they fall off the trees it's like they're so happy <laughs> like they're gliding right there's such great teachers about how to let go gracefully I walk in the woods so that I get reminded of that. Mm. To remember that I am part of nature, which means I'm constantly in process. I am not a stuck thing. I'm not Deborah, who is this personality. I'm changing every single day. And to give space for that. And then I remember about other people. So is everybody else in process. And everything is changing. Everything is in flux. And the time that I'm suffering is when I'm trying to stop something from changing. Always causes me pain, especially when it's already started to change. I know you would have had this experience where a relationship has already started to change and I'm trying to stop it, you know, for whatever reason. And that causes pain for both people, not just me, but the other person, because I'm trying to crystallize them. I'm trying to keep them stuck in a certain idea of who they think they should be. So walking, being out of nature is a huge part of it for me. Oh, yeah. You know I'm, I'm on the same level with that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's and then, it. And it's... then you go about your day. Yeah. Then I actually start and do some work. <laughs> but people can also join you on the mornings, can't they? Yeah, I teach. So I teach an online class. I do a private class in the morning, but I mainly teach for this an online company called Cloud Sanger, which is formed by Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. I'm one of their teachers. So I teach mindfulness meditation across the world. There's a, a group of people that come together every morning 
and practice at like 7am it's gorgeous amazing amazing yeah. and people can also find you at deborahbarryman.com Okay. Right yeah what happens when your practice changes or you know you sleep in a bit late or you're not really feeling like listening to yourself like where do you put those emotions where do you allow room and space for them because this is the thing you know I can be really you know I'm finding this a lot at the moment I can find a real spiritual connection I can feel a real sense of peace and then I just fall into a pit and I'm not the person to go to look for inspiration. And it's all like, you know, there's that, isn't there? There's that balance. There's that light and shade. How do you manage that? So it's taken years to establish a consistent daily practice. I would say that. So for years, I did it for a period of time. Then I'd feel better. So then I stopped, <laughs> which is what we all do. <laughs> you know, once we feel better, we stop doing the things that make us feel better. It's taken me many cycles and years to figure that out. For somebody who's quite intelligent, it took me a long time. So there's a balance of discipline and flexibility, I think. So having a structure that I know works is really good and trying to maintain that every day has worked well for me. And there are times where, you know, if I've been to a gig because I like music, and I got in at two in the morning, then I'm not going to get up at 5.30 and go through that practice. But I will get up and figure out, okay, if I can't do this today, what can I do? There's a real meeting myself where I am. What can I do? Okay, I can do the walk today, but I may not do the sitting practice. Or I might do somatics instead of yoga because it's a bit more relaxing. Or there's space for something. But I always try and do something because it's the thread that keeps me in a certain place in my nervous system that allows me to show up in my life in a way that I can be really present with other people because that's the cost, right? If I don't do this, then I start to shut down. I start to contract. I start to become a little more self-centered. And then, you know, everything suffers because of that. Myself and my relationships will suffer. I'm really impressed because I find that when I'm going through a difficult stage, the last thing I do, which is what I need, is get on the yoga mat or do a meditation or, you know, even go for a walk in the woods. Like, that's what I really struggle with when I, you know, and I speak to friends who say the same. Mm. So, oh, it can feel like a real effort sometimes. It's so hard, yeah, and the difficulty of that as well is then when we fall into that, I call it the quiet pit of despair, you know, you may not be rolling around on the floor crying your heart out, you might be eating a packet of biscuits and watching Netflix, but it's still the quiet pit of despair, and I think the skill and the challenge is when I'm there to not fire the second arrow, to not then beat myself up for the fact that I haven't gone on my yoga mat and gone for a walk, because that just digs me deeper into the hole of despair, right? It's just that kind of sense going back to the self-compassion, the sense going, okay, it's one of those days where I just couldn't do anything. Maybe tomorrow will be different, you know? So there's a kind of gentleness about it. Mm. We don't make it worse. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. We've talked obviously pre my diagnosis and I remember I knew you when your mum was very ill with terminal cancer we talked about that during her mm. illness and after she passed and my dad died of pancreatic cancer 17 years ago now so I could really understand a lot of what you were going through 
I found your approach to it. There was definitely emotion, strong, a lot of emotion there, but obviously complicated emotions given your childhood and your relationship with your mum. And yet you were very committed to being, from what I saw, like a very supportive, good, for want of a better word, daughter. That was sort of what I saw from the outside. But what was that like? A, having your mother become very ill, and you've already said she was an alcoholic, and so I'm sure that that impacted on the cancer and the treatment, but also wrapped up in the emotions that you must have felt towards her. And that might be too much for you to share, which is fine. No. <laughs> I'll share what comes to mind, so I'm going to trust in that. I was travelling, so I just left a career in corporate and I decided to go travelling. I've been in South America for three months and I decided, I'm already trained as a yoga teacher and I decided I was going to do the circuit, as they call it. I was going to teach retreats around the world and you know spend a few years travelling. I phoned home and told my brother and he said that mum had been diagnosed with lung cancer and she was going in for surgery in the next week. So that kind of changed everything. I flew home. And um, she went through surgery and she ended up in a coma. It didn't go so well. She ended up in a coma for about three or four weeks over Christmas, but then survived and came out of it. But everything changed. Everything changed because even if somebody has had cancer and gone through surgery, you'll know this, <laughs> it's not the end, right? And I think that's a misconception and a misunderstanding sometimes where People feel that once the surgery has been done or the treatment has been completed, then that's it. It's the end of the story. And yet it's not because that person is forever changed and how they live their life is forever changed. There's a degree of uncertainty that will forever be present in that person's life and the people around them. So there was coming to terms with all of that. It turned out that she ended up having five episodes of cancer in seven years so it was a long bumpy road with treatments and scans and results and treatments and scans and results and like you said it was uh it was complicated because here is a woman where there is a very difficult history with and somebody who wasn't very capable of living life you know she just couldn't cope with life at all overwhelmed by anything and everything for her own reasons, she had her own history that kind of makes it all kind of make sense. So there is this person who is living with and trying to deal with her own mortality, but not coping very well with it at all. You know, she was falling down a hole, her alcoholism got worse, her behavior and anger got worse because she was terrified. And so as a family, we had a choice about whether we pull away, which was very tempting. <laughs> or we stay as this steady scaffold. You know? So that's something you discussed with your brothers. So you were always a kind of united yeah, thankfully. team in that sense. Yes, thankfully. We all found it difficult, you know, really difficult, but we did our best. The key learning at that point was about boundaries. You know, how do I, how do I support this? And taking the label mum out of the equation was really helpful. How do I support this human being? who has struggled her whole life and is now facing such a difficult part of her life. How do we help her? And how do we protect ourselves from what can be quite toxic behavior? And that was a dance. It wasn't just one decision. You know, you would set a boundary and, and that would work for a period of time and then you'd have to renegotiate that boundary. 
and keep moving into that dance and getting it wrong often. And Did the time... she know that that was the dance? To the best of her ability, I think. Okay, so you did try, so you shared that with her or you just think that given the shift, it was kind of clear what the positions were? There were times where we had to have frank conversations, such as, you know, if I come down to visit you and you've been drinking, I will turn around and go back home because I come down to be with you and to connect with you and I can't do that when you've been drinking. And it's not to say you can't drink, that's your choice, you're a grown woman, but I don't want to be around that. Amazing. So that's... God, that's really amazing because you're just, again, that's a boundary that you're placing yeah. and that is a consequence to a relationship that you don't want to experience. So I think that's amazing, Deborah. Mm. Yeah, amazing and, and hard, you know, and that wasn't done without first of all some frustration and anger and underneath that some hurt and some fear you know that I'm trying to connect with this woman and yet you know I feel like I can't be near her Mm. so yeah it was a constant negotiation Mm. and then you know as it came towards the end she really struggled and weirdly I was in India again I was in that retreat in India (laughs) teaching and I got news that she perhaps she'd been moved to a hospice and maybe had a day or two And I had to leave my retreat, which was a very difficult decision, and fly back home. And yeah, within a few weeks, she passed. They call it complex grief when you have that kind of history with somebody where there's so much trauma and residue of trauma. And yet this is your mother, the only mother that you've ever known. Would you argue that complex grief existed before she passed? Yeah. And this is something that was really interesting is the grieving starts from the diagnosis Mm, definitely because you then have to grieve the future that you thought you were going to have you have to grieve the person who was pre-diagnosis because she doesn't exist anymore you have to grieve the relationship you had before the diagnosis because it's gone everything has changed and then there's a process of grief because you re-establish something new and then that changes and then it changes again. So there's constant, and going back to the, the walk in the woods, this constant rebirth and letting go, rebirth and letting go. I think the skill is recognizing quicker when something has changed so that we can give it room, you know, for both people yeah. um, and allow it to happen. Because sometimes we don't even notice that it's changed and then we try and force it to be something that it used to be and, and it just doesn't work anymore. So, yeah, it was the whole process of the illness and then moving through to when she finally passed. And then, interestingly, I still have a relationship with her. It's ongoing. It's still evolving. You know, I can mm-hmm. I can be in relationship with her now without her humanity and all the complexity around that. That's out of the way. And it means that I can connect to her in a way that doesn't have the armoring around or the blame or the judgment, you know, that may have been there on both sides when she was alive. So it continues continues to evolve. I think that you've touched on things that really interest me. One is when someone close to you is diagnosed with cancer, that can throw up all sorts of complications. It's not just a case of saying, I'm so sorry to hear that your ex has got cancer, ex being a person. I don't mean ex-partner, because you don't know. You, you don't know what that means for that individual. 
how that shifts or shines a light. And definitely what I've found and what I talked about as well in the series where Claire interviews my mother is like how much my relationship with my mum changed, has changed, has had to change. And when it comes to boundaries, you're someone who's really helped me to understand what that means. But I think that's a really interesting point, you know, that then you kind of, whatever that relationship is, you have to kind of reevaluate and reevaluate what's my role here and how much am I going to stick around and what will that look like? What will my support look like? How will that affect me? You know, how will that affect the other person? I think about that all the time with Dinch. You know, I'm always mm -hmm. thinking like, how is Dinch? Who's supporting Dinch? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting. But what's really interesting as well is that you talk about how that relationship is now and how that continues. And I suppose you of everyone will ask me quite frankly, a couple of times about death. What do I think about dying and death? You know, that is not your everyday average question to a friend. But I love the fact that you put that out there because, of course, I think about it. And, you know, look, we have recently, depends when you're listening, had the Queen passing and the state funeral. And you and I got together and watched that. And we talked about how fascinating it is, how people respond to death and how people, you know, deal with death and what the protocols are and what the rituals are. And it's really interesting. You know, I've had a difficult week on the subject and I... I looked up death doulas, you know, and that's another really interesting, like how that's evolving and how, how that's changing. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on living and dying. The two are totally entwined. And also did that change with what happened with your mum? Yes, I think it did. Actually, I was there when she passed. I thought that would frighten me. I thought, I would, you know, I'd be there, but I wouldn't really want to be there. And actually witnessing her dying, she was, you know, physically dying for five days where she was in a coma and could, she had the death rattle and all that kind of stuff. And, and being with her that time felt like the most natural and loving thing in the world to do. There was no fear around it whatsoever. And that surprised me. And watching her pass felt like an absolute privilege to experience this amazing transition that every human being will go through and has done before us. It made the whole process feel like it's absolutely part of the living process. And I think the idea I came away with was we're all living and dying at the same time. We're living and dying at the same time. And we just don't know when it's gonna happen, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> reflecting on that and remembering that often weirdly for me is not morbid but it really invites me into a place of remembering how precious life is now and to try and stay in reality which is so interesting in our culture right to try and stay in reality and to squeeze out every single drop while I'm here by that, I don't mean, you know, going off and jumping out of aeroplanes and <laughs> climbing mountains, although that's lovely. But how do I, and this is my practice, I think this is at the heart of my practice, how do I make a commitment to stay fully present now? Because when I'm fully present, then I can feel fully alive. How do I do that? So I guess it reestablished, reinforced the commitment to that, to embrace all of the things that are happening as a part of life, 
you know, whether I agree with it or disagree with it, whatever my preferences might be, it's kind of just letting life flow through me, including the process of death, you know, which is inevitable. And I love the fact you're exploring a death doula. I think it's such a wonderful thing in our culture. And I hope it becomes mainstream that it just it's part of the process because it's such a, a beautiful idea of being held as we move through that such an important time in our lives that it kind of takes away the clinical aspect and the medical aspect but just comes back to this beautiful spiritual human being who is about to transition into something so mysterious that none of us really get and I think going back to the practice thing the spiritual practice the more I practice my humanity and everybody else's humanity the more spiritual I feel the more connected I feel to um, the people around me, everybody in the planet, and something beyond. So it's such a funny dynamic. Once he described to me about how you see your input in this world, you sort of described it getting scooped up, a bit of energy getting scooped up, and if you could leave that after you died. So just, I'm paraphrasing, you say it much better than me. Can you just reiterate that? I think you mean the soup. I remember this conversation we had in Regent's Park. So my idea of life and death, I think, is that throughout the universe, there is this kind of cosmic energy. I call it the soup. I don't know why I call it the soup. I think because it has many ingredients. And when we're born, it's like we're put into a cup of this cosmic soup. So I become a cup that's filled of cosmic soup. I don't know if I'm explaining this really well. But anyway, I like the soup analogy. It's making me hungry. The cup is the human body, the human experience. But inside, we have this kind of energy, this force of nature that runs through everything and anything. And, you know, again, when I'm out in nature, I get reminded that there is a force and a power that's moving through anything, everything. I can't deny that. I can see it around me every single day. And it moves through me, too. And it moves through you, too. I'm always thinking about what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? And I believe that my job is that cup of cosmic energy that I have been endowed with is to be a good steward of that, first of all, but also to raise the quality, the consciousness of that cosmic energy, whatever it might be. You know, so in my lifetime, can I practice more kindness? Can I practice more truth? Can I practice more love? So by the time I pass, that cup of energy gets put back into the universe, but something has changed, right? Because I've changed the quality of that energy. I've changed the vibration and the frequency of that energy. So that small cup of energy that gets put into the universe changes the whole universe. And I think that's why we're here. I think we're here to raise the level of consciousness in that small and simple yet so significant way. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. Nobody ever knows. That's the wonderful thing about it all. I think we get caught up in arguing about whether we're right or wrong. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. <laughs> um, we do care. We do care. <laughs> me believing that and choosing to have that as my ideology in life makes me a better person. Uh, and it helps me to live with a little more peace. It's kind of like a beacon of light about who I want to be and how I want to show up. Yeah, I mean, that ultimately is your practice, isn't it? I won't call it a religion, but, you know, that you've sort of summed it up there. Yeah. I think. 
which is beautiful. I love it. I think your soup is delicious. That sounds a bit dirty. (laughs) (laughs) But you make a bloody good soup, Deborah. Thanks, love. And I think that's great. I mean, honestly, yeah, it's such a privilege to know you, Deborah, and just to know your... Yeah, just to be able to connect with you. And I think these are the kinds of friendships I have, like really authentic, really true, really connected. And every bit of time that we spend together is just joyous. We always say it's never long enough, is it? But maybe mm. that's the trick. Yeah. Keep it, keep it short Leave us wanting more. Yeah. And, you know, you're definitely someone who, yeah, you've had a big impact on me, particularly since my diagnosis, just as someone that, speaks a lot of sense and understands and you know all of those things and can imagine because you spend time imagining you know so thank you well let me throw that back I so appreciate having you in my life you are a precious and dear friend to me and have been you know since we met on the beach which is such a unusual occurrence you know and you were underlining Brené Brown (laughs) that's right that's what you were under and I always I love people that underline or highlight in their books because I always think do you actually look back do you you probably do I do I reread and I underline and I devour books you know I'm forever studying yeah but you are you're an absolute precious friend and I'm so grateful to have you in my life thank you that's really sweet before you go what are you reading at the moment or listening to or to recommend to the lovely listeners I'm reading uh Mark Nepo Obs. Magneto Obs. I'm back into him. Um, I can't remember the title of the book, which is awful. It's not a great promotion for him. It's got the word courage in it, but it's really this exploration about how do we become more real and less good, which I love, you know, to stop showing up in our lives in a way that we're trying to be good, to be perceived as being good, <laughs> you know, which I'm just gets in the way of finding inner courage. That's it. And it's got some an open satsuma on the cover yes an unpeeled satsuma <laughs> so really how do we become more authentic uh, and have the courage to bring that into the world so the gap between our insides and outsides is almost invisible which i love that's lovely that goes back to your listening mm. gorgeous thank you so much for chatting to me darling it's lovely to see you you're most welcome love you ah. I hope that you enjoyed that episode with Deborah. I know that I think her cosmic soup is delicious. Doesn't need any seasoning at all. It's just the most perfect flavours, all thrown together. If you want to find out more about Deborah, she's got her own website, deborahberryman.com. She does a lot of really interesting things, so I think you should definitely check it out. I will see you next week where we'll have another guest and I can't wait to hear from you. Please get in touch with me, actually. I'd really love to hear from you. You can email me hello at talkingwithcancer.com. You can also find me on Instagram, talking underscore with cancer. And I'm on Facebook. I think I'm on there as Katie Phillips. Anyhow, have a great week. Bye. Bye.